The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. So we're starting in verses 33 and through 37 of Matthew chapter 5, which is the antithesis that Yeshua gives us where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And uh, each of these we've come to realize that he is not saying, uh, you have heard the Torah say such and such, but I'm telling you something different. What he's telling us is, you have heard either a normal, common, accepted interpretation, an application of the Torah, but he's saying, I would like to say to you, let's rethink this or let's consider other aspects of it. And so, we keep that in mind as as we read. In verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. That's an interesting translation, but we'll talk about that. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist any evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. That seems pretty politically incorrect for our times, don't you think? Have you ever known anybody who lived that way? I mean, really lived that way? My suspicions are is that we have uh, often been... Um, misinformed about what this text means. You can see how a text like this, understood in just kind of a plain surface meaning, could have helped produce the monastic life. It sounds like you should have no worldly possessions, or if you have them, you shouldn't really care about them. Give them away. If somebody takes them and doesn't give them back, say la vie. Um, and what bothers us at least what bothers me when I have that kind of first reading of this text is it seems to fly in the face of the Torah the Torah makes it very clear that uh, ownership of, of goods is a high priority you have to be very careful that when you borrow something you return it because it doesn't belong to you and the onus uh, of the, uh, from the Torah's perspective is put upon giving back what is rightfully someone else's. Making sure that if you find something on the ground or somewhere that doesn't belong to you, that you t- make every effort to find its owner. That if there's an animal that wanders away, that you're to care for the animal and make sure that it gets back to its rightful owner. Ownership of land and of property is of high importance in the Torah. And when we have a surface reading of Matthew... Five, it sounds like Yeshua is saying, nah, what you own doesn't really matter. 
In the Torah, we have a high priority put upon justice. And so, if someone takes something from you that, that, that you didn't give him, you have recourse. You go to the courts and you say, this man stole from me and the courts find him guilty. He not only has to return what he stole, but he has to add a fifth to it. And that's what the Torah, that Torah is looking for justice. Yeshua teaches us if someone takes your shirt, give him your coat too. So, can you see kind of the... Does it cause you to feel a little bit... Uh, maybe it's only because we're in such a affluent society. Maybe if we were living in uh, West Africa <laughs> where we only had uh, a couple of things, maybe we wouldn't be so attached to them. I don't know. But, all that to say, I think we need to reconsider the context in which Yeshua said this, what He meant by it. Because we're supposed to live by these words. Alright? So... As his disciples, we should we should know what they mean, or strive to know what they mean. All right. So, verse thirty-three. This fourth antithesis: You shall not make false vows. You have heard that said. You shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. So, this fourth antithesis relates to the issue of vows and oaths. Now, normally, a vow is considered to be something that is made to God. And an oath is usually considered to be something that is made between people. You give a pledge or an oath to someone that you're going to do something or such and such. You give a vow to God that you're going to fulfill some duty or whatever. But uh, it's quite clear that in the first century, those two words had become fairly synonymous. They're used interchangeably in the Mishnah. And uh, I've given you a foot or a side note there to... Uh, Tobias lacks his rabbinic commentary, and he goes into that quite in depth. So, the first thing we should say is, when we're studying this verse, we shouldn't try to say, well, what's the difference between a vow and an oath? Okay, essentially, he's talking about the same thing. The opening phrase you have heard that the ancients were told is the same as when we started this study of antitheses, because that started the group, first group of three, and this starts the second group of three, telling us what? Telling us Matthew likes structure. He likes to group things together so that they can be remembered. So there are six of these. He puts them in groups of three, and he helps us see that by opening the first one and the fourth one pretty much the same way. You have heard it that it was said to the ancients or those of old. This well-known axiom that you should not have uh, that prohibits false oaths and the command to fulfill one's vows to the Lord is based upon texts like Leviticus 19:12. You shall not swear falsely by my name. So as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And Numbers 30, verse 20. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now that, wouldn't you say that that's uh, what we should do? Right? So obviously Yeshua is not saying, well, you know, the Torah tells you to not make false oaths, but I'm telling you it's okay to make false oaths. No, he's not saying that at all. He's upholding the Torah, but in what way? The opening statement of Yeshua, then, is not a direct quote from the Torah, but a general paraphrase combining several Torah texts. Nor does the Greek of Matthew match the Septuagint of these two texts. So he's, is this some kind of a well-known phrase that was going around? Uh, perhaps. It may be that Psalm 50, verse 14 is in mind. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. 
Now, as I said, obviously Yeshua is not contradicting the clear statement of the Torah, which commands that a person is to make honest vows, which he intends to fulfill. That, that's why, you know, uh, lawyers have the caricature that they do, right? I mean, in, uh, in our times, as in ancient times, there were ways that you could take a vow and know you'd never have to keep it, right? Just like you can today. There are legal loopholes where you can sign a contract full well knowing that that contract will not hold up in court and uh, then take it to court and get out of the obligation. Not saying this is tit for tat, but I've known people who went into debt knowing that they could declare bankruptcy and it would be of no consequence. So there was a sense in which they took upon themselves an obligation, but they also knew that the law allowed a loophole for them not to have to be obligated to the debt they had incurred. Well, the same thing was happening in, uh, in the first century. The Torah said, no, when you make a vow, when you make an oath, you should have every intention of keeping it. It should not be a false one. And Yeshua agrees. But at first reading, the Master's words seem to prohibit oaths or vows altogether. But if we put his words into the context of early Judaisms, as we know them, at least, a different emphasis is recognized. As far as we can tell, the taking of oaths and vows had become a common thing in Yeshua's time, so common that it had become customary to utter thoughtless, even outrageous vows. In a few of the uh, rabbinic spots, I've given them to you, all of out of the uh, Babylonian Talmud, we read of vows such as, may I lose my sons if... Now that's stupid to say that. May I lose my sons if I don't do thus and such. Or... May I not see the comfort of the Messianic age if... I mean, those are thoughtless vows. Those are, th those are things that don't make any sense. Oh, you know, when James said, if someone who knows how to control his tongue is perfect in every way, we understand more and more what he means by that. Being able to say what is true and to say only what you know is right and so forth is... Uh, the characteristic of someone who's extremely mature and, uh, and well-versed in what God has taught us, right? We make mindless vows all the time. We, now, we may not realize it because in our culture we, ha we don't put any emphasis upon vows. But, uh, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye is an old vow, right? And we've shortened it to cross my heart. Are you telling the truth? I cross my heart. That's a vow. Now, why do you cross your heart? You say, if I'm telling a lie, may I die? That's where that oath comes from way back when. <laughs> well, when Yeshua says, don't take an oath by your head, what does he mean? So, I mean, it has very practical uh, applications to us because we don't think very much about oaths. We're coming up here to Yom Kippur. It's a day of, of reckoning, a day of reconsidering. And part of what has become the long tradition amongst uh, Jewish communities is to consider one's vows that one has made. And whether or not one was able to keep those vows, whether one has kept those vows, whether there are vows now no longer even able to be kept, and what do we do with those? From a, a Jewish perspective, you make a vow, you're, you have an obligation, and th there's not just a slipping away from it. Like, well, okay, I, don't, I guess I can't do that anymore, so it's out of, out of sight, out of mind. No, no, no. Vows are important because God considers vows to be binding. And it's in that context that we're, we're hearing Yeshua's words about vows. As far as we can tell, the taking of oaths and vows had become a commonplace, as I said. And so, uh, sometimes mindless vows were, were, were uttered. Such thoughtless uttering of oaths prompted the sages to find ways to limit 
the taking of oaths. In other words, as they saw the people just willy-nilly taking these oaths, they said, this is, this is a dangerous thing. We need to do what we can to stop them doing that. And the, the words of the sages directly parallel those of Yeshua in regard to oaths. After a typical Talmudic story of a person who swears, takes an oath, and then suffers, the sages conclude, be you guilty or innocent, do not swear. That sounds familiar. In like manner we read, be careful with vows and not hasty with them, for he who is hasty with vows will end up by false swearing, and he who swears falsely denies me, that is, denies God, and will never be forgiven. Now, I don't believe that, but the sages are, are saying it in such terms as to try to get people to say, okay, well, then I better be very careful. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to Israel, do not imagine that you are permitted to swear by my name even in truth. But wait a minute, Leviticus says, take an oath in my name, right? So we hear the sages saying precisely the same thing that Yeshua was saying. They were denying the Torah. What were they doing? They were trying to limit oath-taking amongst the populace so that they would be far more careful about the importance of oaths. In Philo, by the way, Philo was a near contemporary of Paul. He, he wrote all of his works in Greek. He was a Hellenistic Jew, but he wrote a lot of philosophy and some theology. We read him uh, saying, To swear not at all is the best course and most profitable to life, well suited to a rational nature which has been taught to speak the truth so well on each occasion that its words are regarded as oaths. To swear truly is only, as people say, a second best voyage. For the mere fact of his swearing casts suspicion on the trustworthiness of the man. Let him then lag and linger in the hope that by repeated postponement he may avoid the oath altogether. Well, so what is Philo saying? If someone has to say, look, I'm not lying to you. I promise. By God's name, I'm not lying to you. Why does he have to say that? Because there's the suspicion he might be lying to you. But if he has proven himself over periods of years to be trustworthy and true, then he has no need to make that extra emphasis. It's interesting, isn't it, that we find Paul doing that a number of times in his epistles. God is my witness. I'm not lying, he says in Galatians chapter 1. Okay, the question is, was he saying that because people didn't know him very well? That's very possible. But it's also possible that he had already been maligned, uh, spoken against. That's true. Uh, the comments being made that uh, before he came to faith in Yeshua, uh, Paul was not the friend of many believers. He was a, a, an enemy. And he had proven himself to be a, a pretty valiant enemy, actually. Josephus indicates that the Essenes avoided taking oaths, and the Qumran sect appears to share a similar reluctance regarding vows. Yeshua continues by prohibiting oaths by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or by one's own head. We find similar references in the Mishnah among the debates of what constituted a valid or binding oath and what did not. And this is from uh, Tractate Oaths, Shavuot, uh, 4.13. I impose an oath on you, I command you, I bind you, lo, these are liable. Okay, what does he mean? What is it saying? That's legal language. If you say to someone, I impose an oath on you, that, that's legally binding. By heaven and earth, lo, these are exempt. By the name of Adonai or yod heh by the Almighty, by hosts, by him who is merciful and gracious, by him who is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, or by any other euphemism, lo, these are liable. He who curses 
making use of any one of these is liable. The words of Rabbi Meir. And the sages exempted. So they overruled him. He said, no, no, no. If you say you take an oath by uh, Yote Vafe, but you don't, you, because you're not pronouncing the name, right? You're not allowed to pronounce the name. So if you just say, I take an oath by Yodhe, you can't be proven that you meant God. The sages say they're exempt. He who curses his father or his mother with any one of them is liable, the words of Rabbi Meir, and the sages exempt. He who curses himself and his friend with any one of them transgresses a negative commandment. If he said, may God smite you, so may God smite you, this is language for an adjuration which is written in the Torah. May he not smite you, may he bless you, may he do good to you, Rabbi Meir declares liable for a false oath taken with such a formula and sages exempt. So, the first thing to say in this Mishnah, they're arguing about what constitutes a true oath and what doesn't. And it all has to do with exactly what word you use. The legalese. He who says, not unconsecrated produce shall I not eat with you, not valid food and not pure, not clean for the altar or unclean or remnant or refuse is bound. If he said, may it be to me like the lamb of the daily offering, like the temple sheds, like the wood, like the fire, like the altar, like the sanctuary, like Jerusalem. If he vowed by the name of one of any of the utensils used for the altar, even though he has not used the word korban, which means set apart for God, a sacrifice. Lo, this one has vowed in a binding way as if he had vowed by korban. Rabbi Judah says, he who says Jerusalem has said nothing. So one rabbi says, if you swear by Jerusalem, it's binding. Another rabbi says, yeah, if you swear by Jerusalem, it's nothing. If he said to him, if one litigant said to the other, I accept my father as reliable. I accept your father as reliable. I accept as reliable three herdsmen to serve as judges. Rabbi Meir says he has the power to retract. In other words, what does that mean? When it comes time for the judgment, he can say, wait a minute, I've decided you're not valid judges. I said you were at the beginning, but now I retract. And sages say he has not got the power to retract. If one owed an oath to his fellow, and his fellow said, instead of an oath, take a vow to me by the life of your head, Rabbi Meir says he has the power to retract. And the sages say he has not got the power to retract. What does it mean to take an oath by the life of your head? It means by your life. As sure as I'm living, I promise you I'll do this. With the idea that if I don't do it, I shouldn't be living. Yeshua uses these same metaphors, doesn't he? By heaven by the earth, by Jerusalem, by one's head. I mean, the language is similar to what the sages were uh, talking about. If these rabbinic discussions give evidence of the early debates over what did and did not constitute a binding oath, then it becomes clear that the problem addressed by Yeshua was one of legal ambiguity in the matter of oaths and vows. The tangle of legal rulings surrounding the whole matter of oaths and vows had made them practically ineffective. Not, not unlike today, right? Not unlike today. You can, a good lawyer can get you out of almost any contract. But that doesn't mean we should sign contracts with that in mind, does it? That's his point. As such, the integrity of a person's words had lost their value to the red tape of the legal system. Yeshua therefore teaches that one's word should be enough without needing to rely upon legal constraints that could be manipulated to one's advantage later on. Moreover, it becomes clear that Yeshua is not prohibiting oaths or vows altogether but is teaching that one's oath should be simple and honest and made with the full recognition that God is witness to one's oath. For this reason, to swear by heaven or earth is superfluous. It's the same as to swear by God's name, for heaven and earth belong to him, right? Isaiah 61.1, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Likewise, Jerusalem is his dwelling place. And to swear by the holy city is the same as evoking the witness of God. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of, of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now, Yeshua must have been alluding to that. Don't swear by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. In other words, don't you recognize that when you swear by Jerusalem, you are swearing by the name of God? It's as though that you are. So shouldn't you say all things with the recognition that God is listening? Why should you have to take this extra vow? Once again, such an addition to one's oath is superfluous since one should recognize that God alone is the one who maintains life. To swear by one's head is equivalent to the Hebrew chaye roshecha, by the life of your head, meaning by oneself. Once again, such an addition to one's oath is superfluous since one should recognize that God alone is the one who maintains life. Black hair may represent youth and white hair the aged. So you can't make your white hair black now, I know, in... In, uh, in cosmetics, you can, but that, that's not Yeshua's point. His point is, is that you can't turn aged hair back to its color when you were young. You can't get that time back. You can't get life back that way. You can't relive days that you have already lived. Your life is in God's hands. In other words, we cannot halt time and keep from growing old. Our times are in His hands, for it is in Him we live and move and exist. The Yeshua then concludes, but let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Thus our Master's conclusion is not that oaths or vows are prohibited, for saying yes or no was considered an oath. Rabbi Elazar said, yea is an oath and nay is an oath. Rabbi said, but only then if yea and nay are said twice. Now, that, that, when you have... Let your yes be yes and your no, no. It's not saying it twice here. But, I mean, you get the idea that they would say, if you promise something, it's the same as an oath. If someone says, will you repay this debt? And you say yes, that's the equivalent of an oath. Yeshua says, good. That's the way an oath should be. A recognition that when you promise, you will carry through. Likewise, the sages taught the same thing regarding simply saying yes or no is a valid oath. Let your nay and your yea both be zedek, righteous. Rabbi Chuna said, the yea of the righteous is a yea. Their no is a no. According to Mekilta, which is a commentary on Exodus, the Israelites answered yea, yea, and nay, nay to the commands at Sinai. That's how the commentator says, oh, because what did they do at Sinai? Remember? That's an oath. All that he said we will do. That's an oath. And they said, amen and amen. So they took an oath. And when the commentator of this early rabbinic commentary on Exodus explains what an oath is, he said they said, yes, yes, and no, no. They agreed with what God had said in every way. <clears throat> Thus, while not prohibiting vows or oaths altogether, Yeshua does bring us back to the very import and message of the Torah, namely that our word should be fully spoken in truth and with integrity. James reiterates the essence of our Master's teaching. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So he's giving us a bit of a commentary. Well, either he's given a commentary on Yeshua's words, or Yeshua and he are reiterating the same teaching uh, that was probably in some cases extant in Yeshua's time. I would say that James is quoting Yeshua and uh, putting that into his message as well. It seems apparent that Yeshua's words here were understood by his apostles as we have construed them. That is, not as prohibiting oaths altogether, 
but requiring that his disciples make simple vows with full intention of fulfilling them. Thus, Paul himself took a Nazarite vow, right, in uh, Acts 18, and he helped four men complete their vow, all of which would have required the taking of a vow. Likewise, Paul uses oath formula in Romans 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, and so forth. And the angel of John's apocalypse swears by the God of heaven in Revelation 10, 6. So what, why do I bring that up? Apparently, uh, the idea that, well, Yeshua had t told all of his followers, you're no longer allowed to take any oaths, was not how it was understood from the very beginning. And it's not how it should be understood. We have people, well, f since the earliest times, some of the church fathers uh, interpreted our text to say, you're not allowed to take an oath. And we have certain religions in our day that refuse to take oaths. The Quakers, uh, at least traditionally, I don't know if they still do, but uh, uh, the Mennonites and the Quakers originally refused to take oaths. So when you went, when they were ushered into a court of law as a witness and they were told to raise their hand, um, they would refuse to do it. And it caused problems. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses, I think, they do the same thing. And I'm sure there are other uh, religious sects. In my way of understanding, that is not what this text is saying. This text is saying, when you make an oath, make it simple and make it so that you, and, and make sure you know that you intend to do and accomplish what you promise to do in that oath. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the comments being made, if, if you're not willing to follow through, then you're not willing to make the promise. Uh, I, we had good friends, uh, well, they're still our friends, we haven't seen them for years, but, we had good friends that used to live in Tacoma. They moved uh, out of state now. But uh, he, he would never make a promise. He, never, he didn't make a promise on his wedding day. He didn't say, I do. Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't make a promise to anyone. He wouldn't make a promise to his kids. He wouldn't, he, and, you know, I finally asked him. I said, man, what is up with this? And he said, you never know if you're going to be able to keep a promise, so there's no use making it. You may make a promise, and the next minute you may be gone from this world. Well, that's not really what making a promise means. Making a promise means that in, in every way, as to all of the extent of your ability and strength, you will follow through on what you've said to do. What is in the hands of God is in the hands of God. That we can't control. But um, I think promises are important. I think it's important for us to make promises in the vital relationships that we have. And I think it's, uh, you know, we've done a lot of talking in, uh, in our community about community. The whole basis of community rests upon people keeping their word. If you don't keep your word, if you don't keep your oaths, if you don't keep your vows, it all falls apart. And so Yeshua is, is talking to us about some of the most important aspects of relational life together, living together, whether it's the family unit or whether it's the larger unit of community. You cannot trust people who are not willing to follow through on their word. And community is built upon trust. You're not going to be willing to put yourself... To, to allow, shall, can I use this term, to allow your back to be guarded by someone you can't trust? So um, the tr trust and the breach of trust are, are extremely important issues in, in forming communities, and uh, especially communities that intend to have longevity. I know um, growing up as a preacher's kid, um, that's a, that is, a, by the way, how many, any of you grow up as preacher's kids? Yeah, okay, a few of you, yeah. Well, then you know that uh, there are special pressures. There are special pressures. Because what a lot of people outside of your walls of your house don't see is the unbelievable stuff that's said about your dad and done 
with regard to your dad. I can, I can remember shaking my head thinking to myself, how in the world could anyone do that to my dad? They just don't know my dad. Now, that's an impossible thing. You know, they would accuse him of lying. They would accuse, you know, and my dad was the most honest person you would have ever met in your life. And so you begin to get a bit jaundiced about that. And you begin to wonder if there's any reality in the congregation. If people can treat each other this way, then where is the reality of it? And so it's not, un, it's, you know, you, you wonder at times why uh, leader, the kids of leaders uh, uh, sometimes uh, go left or right from center. <laughs> well, part of it is because they've, they've been, uh, unfortunately, they've been privy to a lot of hypocrisy that has gone on uh, that maybe other people don't see. And so it, I only tell that to say it's so, it's so important for us as adults to recognize that our trustworthiness and our willingness to stand firm in the oaths and vows that we've made has a huge impact upon our children, upon the next generation. What is it that, uh, is it in, is it in pro, uh, Psalm, uh, excuse me, Psalm 15, is that, it jumps into my mind suddenly, where it says, um, yes, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. What does it mean to swear to his own hurt and not change? It means that when you take an oath and then you realize it's going to cost you a lot more than you thought in one way or the other, either in time, in effort, in sacrifice, in money, whatever, if you have taken that oath, if you have taken that, made that promise, you follow through even if it hurts. And uh, the psalmist says that's the kind of person who is righteous will not be moved. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. So, Yeshua has brought us to a very important issue here, and that is that our oaths must be with integrity, done with wisdom, careful not to do so with the idea that we can get out of what we're promising, and done, done with the idea that Yeshua himself, that the, the Master himself is witness to our oath. All right, any questions on uh, or co other comments, uh, additions that you'd like to add to uh, let your yes be yes and your no, no? Yeah, the comment uh, is being made that uh, there, there's the possibility that people were using substitutions or circumlocutions for the name of God and kind of unaware of the fact that when they were doing that, it was the same as uh, invoking the name of God. However, as I noted in the, in the text, in the notes here, there were some sages who said when you make a circumlocution, it's not binding. So, uh, you know, there was, my suspicions are is that the people were aware of it and they were aware of the loopholes as well. And so, 
you know, as long as they had a good lawyer, they could get out of. Yeah, like cross your fingers behind your back before you. Uh, that somehow that nullifies your vow or something like that. Yes. Yeah, the the comments being made that uh, Yeshua recognized the circumlocutions like heaven, or like the omnipresent. Some of the other terms that are used uh, were valid substitutions for the name, and that one should treat that them uh, as such, as the valid calling upon the Almighty in when when one is using those. I agree. I think so. All right, verses 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Whoa. Is that, is that radical? The law of, of uh, lectalionis, that is the law of retaliation, is found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in the Torah. The sages, and that means what? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so forth and so on. The sages have always understood the application of Lex Talionis of the Torah to be in the sense of equivalence, that is, equivalent payment equal to the evaluation of the loss. So how would they do that? They would say, for instance, here's a young man that uh, lost his leg because of negligence of another person. The other person is therefore required to compensate him for the loss of his leg. How would they figure that compensation? They would consider this. Okay, what's the normal lifespan of a man in our times? What would he be able to gain by way of wages as a worker in the field in which he was being trained or in which he worked? What would be his normal wages? What wages can he get now that he's an amputee or that he's a... And they did have prosthetics, by the way, in the ancient world. Uh, that now that he's an amputee and uh, wouldn't be able to do that occupation anymore, what would be the differential in his, in his pay? That would be the cost. That would be the value of that leg. And that could be uh, beyond the means of anyone to pay, which would mean what? Whoever was guilty would have to support him the rest of his life, take care of him. Make sure he has food, make sure he has his clothing, make sure he has needs uh, met, and so forth and so on. Okay? So, one thing that was clear was that Lex Talionis did not mean that they would cut the guy's leg off who, uh, who negligently did something that caused somebody else injury. Now, uh, un yeah, unfortunately, there are those, and there are cultures who, who believe that, okay, who took it that way, and still do. All right? The, the, the Muslim culture still does dismember people as punishment for crimes. The idea of physical mutilation as a means of lawful punishment has no example in the scriptures except for the penalty for a woman who injures a man's private parts. Her hand is to be cut off. However, the sages interpret this as they do Lextelionis and understand the penalty to be the equivalent value of a hand, which I think is correct interpretation. The only example we find is during warfare when the soldiers of Israel defeated Adoni Bezek, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Of course, that was uh, in-kind compensation. Why? What was, this, what was this pagan king known for? He said a little riddle after they cut off his thumbs and big toes. He said, Adoni Bezek has cut off the thumbs and toes of 70 kings, and it's fitting that therefore his punishment be in-kind. But that was in the time of war. That was with regard to a war criminal, not with regard to normal justice. What I'm saying then is that no one, we have no illustration, no example whatsoever 
anywhere in the Tanakh or anywhere in the history of Israel that when someone lost an eye, the person who was at fault lost their eye. That, that, that was not how this was understood ever. It was considered to be the, 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 the penalty equivalent to the value of an eye, tooth, whatever. In our context, however, Yeshua quotes a representative line from the Lex Talionis, but places it in the context not of physical injury, but of public humiliation. For a slap on the cheek is not an injury to the body, but to one's soul and sense of personal dignity, right? When it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, when you get slapped on the cheek, you didn't lose anything. Except what? Maybe some pride and dignity in a, in a public setting. Some have suggested that the idea of the right cheek would mean that a right-handed person doing the striking would do so with the back of the hand. Right? I mean, if you're facing somebody and you're right-handed and you slap them, normally you would slap their left cheek. So how would you slap the right cheek? You'd have to go backhanded. Right? Okay. And in the ancient world, this was, in fact, a greater sense of public humiliation. As we shall see, the Mishnah considers a backhanded slap of even greater consequences. The Mishnah gives five areas where damages may be lawfully sought. He who injures his fellow is liable to compensate him on five accounts. Injury, pain, medical costs, loss of income, and indignity or embarrassment, public humiliation. It is to the fifth category that Yeshua makes reference, and the Mishnah uses his same analogy. He who boxes the ear of his fellow pays him a selah. Rabbi Judah says, in the name of Rabbi Yossi the Galilean, a manea. If he smacked him, he pays him 200 zoos. If it is with the back of his hand, he pays him 400 zoos. So only the rich people could give, could give the back of their hand. A mane was uh, equivalent to 25 selahs and 100 zoos. To give an idea of these evaluations, a pair of oxen for plowing could cost 200 zoos. Okay, so think of, uh, think of a pair of oxen about like the value of a tractor, right? That's what they would use for their plowing, okay? So if you smack somebody in public with the back of your hand, the court could fine you double the cost of a pair of oxen. That's a good sum. That's a pretty good sum. In other words, they were, uh, they were trying to keep people from doing public humiliations. It may well be in the context of these legal penalties for public insult that Yeshua gives his teaching. It is not as though he diminishes the grave results of public insult, but his method of dealing with it is not to seek monetary payment, but rather to combat such insult with humility. One is not to resist an evil person, which in this context means must mean one is not to retaliate with equivalent insults. When somebody insults you, what do you do? Insult him back? Well, that's Yeshua says, no, no, no. Don't resist. Don't retaliate. Don't fight back this person who's coming at you with this evil speech. Moreover, to turn the other cheek means to allow additional insults to go unchallenged. It is not through hauling the insulter into court and demanding payment, but through a humble and gracious spirit that one insulted will be seen as righteous. Nothing illustrates this more than the example of Yeshua himself. For you have been called for this purpose, Peter writes, since Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Understood in this way, the teaching of our master is not in reference to bodily injury or to someone attacking another person to inflict bodily harm. If someone comes at you with a baseball bat, don't turn the other cheek, right? If someone doubles up his fist and is intending to cold cock you, duck 
and and leave. Get away from there. Get you know, don't don't say, Oh, hit me again. That's not what Yeshua is saying here. The slap in relationship to eye for eye, tooth for tooth means something that doesn't relate to bodily injury, but it's something that is nonetheless significant within the public square. All right. He is dealing rather with the wounds of public defamation and teaches us that humility, not returning insult for insult, and allowing the Almighty to deal with the one who has tried to inflict public insult is the way of righteousness. Some of the sages taught the same thing. Has it not been taught concerning those who are insulted but do not insult others in revenge, who hear themselves reproached without replying, who perform good work out of love of the Lord and rejoice in their sufferings? Scripture says, But they that love Him will be as the Son when He goes forth in His might. That means, indeed, that He keeps it in His heart, though without taking action. But Rabbah said, He who passes over his retaliations has all his transgressions passed over. This speaks of the case that an endeavor was made to obtain his reconciliation and his consent is obtained. In other words, if you don't return insult for insult, if you allow humility to rule and righteousness to rule, you will keep coals upon the other person's head eventually. And if not, that's God's business. So uh, likewise, we read in uh, the Tosefta Bhavakama, if you are struck, you must forgive the offender even though he does not ask for your forgiveness. So the sages are not that different. I mean, they're not being that uh, contrary to what Yeshua is saying. They're, they're oftentimes talking in the same themes. Likewise, in the daily prayers we recite, My God, guard my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceitfully. To those who curse me, may my soul be unresponsive and let my soul be like dust to all. That's what Yeshua is saying. When you're insulted, be like dust. It's kind of a hard one, though, isn't it? <laughs> it's harder for some personalities than others. I have personal experience at this. But it is nonetheless what the Master teaches us. And we do well to heed it and to learn how to apply it. All right. Verses 40 through 42. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. In the Luke parallel, the wording is somewhat different. Luke reads it this way. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now, some have understood the idea of take away here in Luke to mean rob or steal. But the verb, the Greek verb, iro, does not generally have this sense. And I think they're dead wrong on this one. So I think Luke is not suggesting that some that someone when someone robs a person of something, he is obligated to offer him other things as well. Like as if, okay, you, you catch somebody breaking into your uh, your garage and they're they're making off your tools. And you go, Hey, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, take my car too. No, that's not what Yeshua is saying. But do you see how when you read it that way, it sounds like it's so other, so opposite of Torah? It's no wonder that people who have not studied Torah and have no background in the Tanakh would think that clearly what Yeshua is teaching is other than and opposite from what the Torah teaches. Rather, what he means here, Luke's takeaway is probably equivalent to Matthew's picture of taking one's shirt as a legal compensation in a lawsuit. We should recognize that these verses continue in the same context already established. That is, Yeshua's call for humility and forbearance on the part of his disciples. Someone who takes a person to court must be presumed to have a valid claim. I mean, if you go to court and it's a total, and it's a total fabrication, the judge is going to say, why did you waste my time? Go away. 
So the idea says when, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, it's, it, I think the wording would say we presume he has a legal claim. You have failed to, to uh, uh, pay what you owe or follow through on what you had contracted. In the illustration given, given by our master, the plaintiff sues for compensation and the defendant is portrayed as very poor since the clothes on his back are his only valuable possessions. Rather than seeking some legal loopholes or countersuit, the one who knows that a claimant has a valid case against him should fully comply and seek to make full restitution, even if it means giving up what might be rightfully retained. For the inner garment, the shirt, was not protected under Torah law, but the outer tunic may have been. Right? What does the Torah say about taking the tunic for a pledge? What are you supposed to do? You have to give it back by nightfall. Why? Because it's the only thing he can sleep with. So the idea was is that if really you owed this person the value of both your inner shirt and your outer cloak, but you knew you wouldn't have to pay because the Torah protected the outer cloak, Yeshua says, no, no. If you owe it to him, you give it to him. Don't rest upon some legal loophole so that you don't have to pay your debts. Now, this brings up a very uh, a controversial issue, which I don't have in my notes. So why would I want to be controversial? So I didn't put it in there. Is it proper for a believer for a follower of Yeshua to declare bankruptcy. Now, in some cases, in our times, a person has no choice. He is forced into bankruptcy. Uh, there, are, there are times when, uh, at no fault of a, uh, of a, of a person himself, he, he falls uh, ill, perhaps, or you can uh, any number of scenarios, he's un unable to make the payments on his house, his house is repossessed, he's un unable to make the payments on uh, his cr to his creditors and so forth and so on, and the creditors eventually, what will they do? They will take him to court. And when he is unable to pay, what will the creditors say? He has to liquidate all of his assets, and then the court will require him to declare bankruptcy in order to maintain his, li his living. Because bankruptcy is, is at least enough to allow you to keep a living quarters if you have them and, and some bare necessities. Okay. So maybe that's a separate case, but is it ever right for a believer in Yeshua to say, look, the debt is more than I'll ever be able to handle. I've gotten myself in a deep, dark pickle here. And, uh, you know, the government allows me to go in and declare bankruptcy, and uh, a few years later I'll be free from this. You know, my, my own personal feeling is that Yeshua would say, no, if you made, a, if you made an obligation, if you took a, an oath to pay, you have every responsibility to do everything within your power to pay. And even that uh, would presume on the future, wouldn't it? If we declare bankruptcy, how do we know? If we, maybe God is going to give us a, a windfall down the road. I mean, we don't know. We have no way of knowing what, what He could bring our way. So, I think... That's one of the practical things. The other, the other practical thing is don't get into debt to where you have to face these issues. Uh, the Bible is very clear for us, uh, the book of Proverbs and other places, that while there's nothing, there is nothing uh, sinful about, about incurring debt, one should recognize the vulnerability that one puts himself in when he does incur debt. You enslave yourself to the creditor. And uh, so... Uh, in a, in a world that's gone crazy in debt, it's so easy to get into debt these days, isn't it? H how many, how many uh, card offers do you throw away every week? I, I mean, I, I literally throw at least three, four, maybe five away every week. You know, and, and, and every time they, they send you another one, the, uh, the automatic limit has increased. 
You know, guaranteed $32,000 limit. Guaranteed, you know, it keeps going up and up and up. You're thinking to yourself, my goodness. Uh, our, our people, there's, the people must be using these kinds of things else they wouldn't have the money to keep sending them the offer. Well, okay. So, we should presume that this is a valid lawsuit and that uh, the one who should pay uh, is required to pay. And Yeshua says, pay all, no matter what, no matter if it takes the last that you have. The second illustration is that of forced travel. In the first century Roman society, a Roman soldier had the authority to require any common person to assist him in his travels, especially to carry his equipment. And as far as we can tell, it was a favorite thing of the Roman soldiers to conscript Jewish people. They always looked for a Jew. We could even surmise that uh, the uh, Simon the Cyrene, who he was conscripted for what? To carry the, 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 the execution stake. And who was it that, you know, we don't hear him saying, no, get somebody else. You know, the Roman soldier said, you, carry this. Well, the Roman soldier had the legal right to conscript any common person to help him carry what was required of his duties. And uh, so that's probably what was going on there. Apparently, such a requirement could only be extended for a mile. Here we have the Greek word milon, from which we get our word mile. But it was about 20% shorter than our modern mile. So it isn't that the soldier could conscript you for the rest of the day. You had to, you had to. Okay, I've got to take, I've got to quit doing what I'm doing and go help him carry so far. Then he's got to get somebody else, and I can come back and go and do what I'm doing. So what does Yeshua say? If he forces you to go a mile, what are you supposed to do? Go two. Go two. Right. Yeshua, however, requires that his disciples give double the request. It is natural to suppose, one writer says, that. Matthew 1.41 is concerned with the situation which would arise if a Jewish civilian is impressed as a baggage carrier by a Roman soldier of the army of occupation. If the victim is a follower of Yeshua, or Jesus, he will give double what is demanded. The first mile renders to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The second mile, by meeting oppression with kindness, renders to God the things that are God's. Can we live in a hostile world and have that perspective? Our Lord's instructions on this topic are concluded with his requirement that his disciples be gracious and giving. His words are in the form of a parallelism. So he is not talking about two things. That is, when he says, give to him who asks, number one, and secondly, let him borrow things. No, it's one and the same thing. Rather, the two are speaking of the same thing. That is, a generous spirit that considers God to be the supplier of all one's needs. Interestingly, a discussion on revenge and bearing a grudge has the same Uh, topic. What is revenge? And what is bearing a grudge? If one said to his fellow, lend me your sickle, and he replied, no. And tomorrow the second one comes to the first and says, lend me your axe. And he replies, I will not lend it to you, just as you would not lend me your sickle. That's revenge. And what is bearing a grudge? If one says to his fellow, lend me your axe, he replies, no. And on the morrow, the second asks, lend me your garment. And he answers, here it is. I'm not like you, who would not lend me what I asked for. That's bearing a grudge. And Yeshua basically says, look, when someone asks to borrow, allow them. Give them what they need. Give graciously. Why? Well, because we're to have a loose grip on what we own. And why? Because it it isn't something that we've gained. It's something that God's given to us. You know, and 
I mean, there's still in all of these things there has to be wisdom. You know, it has to be wisdom. I, the next section is, of course, uh, you've heard it said, love your uh, uh, your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, that's a tough one in our day, isn't it? I was uh, I was dialoguing today with some of the people who are writers at FFOZ because I was having difficulty with an article that's being written, and I I'm trying to figure out, you know, how does this fit together? Uh, when it says love your enemies, does that mean loves love the Muslims? See, I mean, now you see, uh, we have had it really easy in in the history of America, generally speaking, because uh, after this, after the uh, Civil War, we have not fought. Well, there were a few uh, wars with the Indians and so forth, but uh, we have not fought a major war on our turf, right? We have not had enemies invade our country and come in and uh, and take over part of our country where we lived under their occupation. But Israel has time and again, and still. And still is. Uh, so we don't really know what it's like to love. If, I don't, I'm not sure that's what Yeshua means by enemy at any rate. We'll talk about that ne- next week. But what does it mean um, to give to someone who's, uh, who asks you? Well, it means you still have wisdom. If you know that somebody um, has, you know, if someone, let me just put it this way. Some, someone you know, someone perhaps in the community, whatever, comes to you and says, you know what? I've been driving my car for three weeks without any oil and it finally died down here. Can I use your car? Now, wisdom, you know, doesn't Yeshua say here, give to him who asks. But wouldn't wisdom dictate that you should take him by the hand and say, I want to show you where the oil goes. And, you know, here's a quart of oil and I expect you to check it. In fact, I'd like you to come by three days from now and I'd like to check it for you make sure everything's okay. In other words, there's nothing wrong with putting some wisdom into your giving, Right? Um, if someone doesn't know, to how to, know how to use a power saw and he comes in and asks you if he can borrow your power saw, it would be wise for you to take him through some safety steps on, on how you can cut a board with a power saw and how you can also cut your arm off with a power saw. I mean, it would be, be, it would be wise to do that. So we shouldn't take these words as just kind of this blanket. What, everybody, what anybody asks of you, you're obligated to give it. That's not the point. The point is that when someone is in need and they come and ask you, to borrow something from you, you ought to be open-hearted and give it to them. And even if they have a, the ability to demand you to do something, maybe even that you don't want to do, like go a mile with a soldier carrying his gear, you say, okay, I'll take it two miles. I'll go that extra. That's the heart of our master. And that's what he expects us to do. And that's why his words are so radical. When we hear other religions in our world and what they're telling their followers to do, and then when we hear what Yeshua says and what he tells us to do, there is such a radical difference. It's amazing. Okay, we'll close off there. Any uh, questions or comments? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the question is, what about obligatory oaths in our society, such as Boy Scouts, such as when you go into court, you have to say, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You used to say, so help me God, but they don't require that anymore. However, you can add that. You're allowed to add that personally. Uh, but whatever. The point is is that Yeshua's words are not prohibiting vows. They're simply asking us to make vows. He's, he's telling us, commanding us to make vows with clear understanding of what we're doing and with full intention to uh, fulfill those vows. So take a boy scout. Okay, He raises his three fingers and he takes the scout's oath. Well, he ought not to do that. He ought to be told, don't do that unless you really mean it. Unless you intend to do what you say, don't make the oath. Don't take the oath. Uh, 
That would be the application of Yeshua's words here, I think. Okay, the question is asked, what about where someone is required to take an oath under extreme duress? You know, the sages talk about this in, in, in their writings about oath. Yeah, they talk. Um, oaths that are, that are taken under duress are invalid. One must be, well, except, except in uh, some, at least three cases, as far as we can tell. If someone is required to take an oath which denies God, he cannot. If someone is required to take an oath that he will um, commit adultery, he's not allowed to. If someone is required to take an oath uh, saying that he would worship uh, a false god, he, he's not allowed to. Now, you know, someone asked me this question, well, what about uh, some of our servicemen or uh, news personnel and so forth who were forcibly required to say that they would uh, that they agree that Allah is the true God. I don't remember the situation, but it was what a month ago or something. Those two, those two yeah. yeah. What you no know, does God hold them culpable for that? Well the sages would say yes. The sages would say yes. Um, I don't know. You might be able to find a loophole there. <laughs> you might be able to uh, find some way to cross your fingers, or I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to be their judge in that one. But the sages did teach that that in those cases where it would be a denial of the true God, you were required to give your life rather than... Other than that, un, uh, oaths taken under duress are invalid. And that's the same thing that's true in our own jurisprudence. You know, if if you have a gun, somebody has a gun at your head and they say, take a vow that you'll do thus and such or whatever, if it, you know, if he says, uh, take a vow that you'll you know, that you'll change your oil every week. Uh, you say, yeah, I will. No problem. Uh, I take it, take the vow. So, uh, you know, even if uh, later on you, you say, I can't do that, um, the basic rule is that oaths taken under arrest are not valid. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.